Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode 550. For those of you who know that my lucky number is five, I'm kind of obsessed with the number five, you'll know that episode 550 is going to be important to me. And that's why I'm joined today by Samuel T. Herrin of Future Islands. I was so excited to set this up. We We'd been going back and forth on it for a month or so to sort it out. We recorded it just before Christmas and it was an absolute joy. Like instant, instantly relaxed, instantly someone I could talk to for hours and hours on end. I mentioned on last week's episode, so over on Twitch, me and B. Dolan, regular podcast guest and featured on my records, he's one of my favourite humans in the world, we do a semi-regular thing called Pip and B show each other stuff on Twitch. And one of the first episodes of that was musical performances on late night TV shows. And we just spent a couple of hours just showing each other some of our favourites. And one of my favourites was the iconic Future Islands one, which is coming up to its its uh, its 10-year anniversary. So obviously I talked to Sam about that a bit, but we talk about so much stuff. That's a small part of what we get into here. I'm worried that I might have got Sam's band's n- name wrong several times. And let me explain why in the introduction. I mentioned me touring with B. Dolan and working with B. Dolan. Another person I toured with and worked with was an amazing s- singer called N- Natasha F- Fox. Now, Natasha Fox's band, old band, was called Future Ages. So if I'm talking about f- Future Islands... I'm, I'm, I'm worried there might have been a few times I said future ages instead of future islands. I don't know if there was. You're about to listen, so you let me know, right? Make note. But either way, it's an amazing conversation. Uh, we talk about touring life. We talk about, yeah, making a living out of your art, all sorts of things. We talk about acting. It's a joy of a conversation and you're going to adore it. I even throw in a guest question from... Scottish BAFTA award-winning comedian and streamer, Limmy. Yeah, we're brought to you as ever by speechdevelopmentrecords.com. That's where you can buy my merch. It's a great way to support the podcast. We've got some really good stuff over there. We've got our whole We May Not Be For You and That's Fine range. Our record label slogan is is We May Not Be For You and That's Fine. And that's gone down really well as as merch. It's on on jumpers, on hats, on scarves, on all sorts of good things. Um, So head there. Head to patreon.com forward slash Pip if you want to support the podcast for like a dollar or two a month. And as I said, twitch.tv forward slash Pip, Whether you're catching me live and having real life interaction and talking back and forth via the chat, or you're catching up on the, on the VODs. As I said, there's so much stuff over there that's music based, that's conversation based. There's gaming as well but there's loads that's not gaming. So head over there. It's all free. Let's get into this. What a start to the year we're having. Joel Edgerton and then Sam from Future Islands. Bloody dream guests off the back here. Let's go. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode 550 with Samuel T. Herring. Right, I'm here today with Samuel T. Herring of Future Islands. 
How are you, man? I'm doing very well. I'm feeling, uh, I'm a little sleepy. I just landed in Los Angeles for the first time in a couple of years last night. Oh, wow. So yeah, it's one of those. I, I, I was trying to rope you into an early morning uh, call from New Orleans, and now it's even earlier in Los Angeles. So, But, uh, but yeah, right. it's yeah. a beautiful day. <laughs> I didn't even think of that. It's a beautiful day seeing friends. And uh, last night, it was my buddy's 40th birthday coming up, so I wanted to come out here and and be a part beautiful as i was going to kind of ask what what's going on at this time of year because you've you've spent the year you've been and we'll get into all of it because there's a new record on the way you've been touring what kind of point of the year do you down tools and start to and start to relax well it's funny because i feel like i'm relaxing all the time <laughs> like yeah as uh we have progressed and i've gotten slower i'm always trying to find you know, find that place where I feel comfortable within myself. I mean, I, I that's probably just natural to the way we do life as we get older. It's like, yeah, when do I get to chill in my brain? And that's something I kind of found a few years ago when I was out. You know, I used to have a partner in Sweden. And so I'd spent a lot of time in the countryside in southern Sweden. And I, at first, it just, I, well, of course, I thought it was this is a beautiful place. But then I quickly would become agitated. And I kind of mm. had to be, you know, it was like, why are you agitated? You have everything you need here. And you have this, this peace and this wonderful, uh, I don't know, you're like to be a part of a family. But it was all these things that I felt like, it was kind of like I grew up in a small town that was mainly just like working people, farmers, uh, fishermen, mm -hmm. uh, fisher people, mechanics. And I, I felt like it was what I was always trying to get away from. And through song, I've kind of glorified this <laughs> place this the the nostalgia that exists within future islands music is often you know these these quiet places these natural spaces that uh that i long for and so i found myself in in this place that was like kind of where i grew up you know mm. it's just a yeah provincial agrarian community and then and then i, I realized that it was something in me that was that was the fight you know it's like it was was something in me that was the problem. So I, I kind of had to break myself. And eventually I did find like this really calm, which to me, the calm was kind of quieting that the uh, ambition. Like uh, I, I often talk about ambition in the, in the sense of what it can do for us and what it can do, like do against us at the same time. Like our ambition mm -hmm. can really drive us to, to do all the things in our life, to take us places we never thought we'd go or, I don't know, just push us to be the best we can be within our art or our careers. But it can also like drive us away from our friends and family and uh, completely isolate us within. So it's it's kind of like finding that, like, like I recognize my parents' workaholic nature from when I was a kid and I hated it, like that I didn't have enough yeah. time with them. And now, you know, by the time I was 32, 33, I was like, oh, that's what I do. <laughs> you know, It's the same Thing. Yeah, exactly. It's 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 really interesting because that ambition is going to be what's responsible for getting you to where you are, but it's also going to be what's responsible for every time you've not taken time to appreciate where you are and what you're doing because there's always going to be the next thing that you're trying to climb up to. Particularly, I think the music industry and the acting industry, all of these industries are so driven by competition at times that I always remember when I started doing music, I was, I'd been working in record stores. So the uh -huh. dream was to just have a CD on a shelf yeah. in a record store. As soon as it was on the shelf, because we'd started to get some daytime radio play, 
we're looking at where we're going to be in the charts and mm-hmm. if we're going to get daytime play, if we're going to get evening play, if it's going to be specialist shows playing us or the mainstream shows and all of this absolute n- nonsense when we should be going, fuck man, we've got a record that people can buy. Like this is this no. is a real thing. This is amazing. That should be the bit that you would enjoy and appreciate. You know? No, you're absolutely right. And that's something I, I think about a lot and I've talked about before, which is, you know, when I was <laughs> when I was going... Uh, or when we first got a spotlight, you know, this band was going 10 years before, almost 10 years before we kind of had a national moment. Yeah. And that was through a performance on Letterman and our fourth album singles. I want to talk about that because we're coming up yeah. to the 10 year anniversary of that. So it's that yeah, kind of, soon. there was 10 years before and there's, it's now 10 years on. So yeah, yeah pe- people keep reminding me of that. And I was like, oh, that is weird. <laughs> yeah, I didn't yeah. think about it, but. It is. It is. We are, we are at the full before and after. Uh, uh, we're we're coming up in just like I guess about four months now. Um, yeah. But yeah, the thing about uh, oh my gosh, I just lost my train. What were we talking about? I derailed you. That's my uh, that, 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 that's my bad. About the kind of competition of it all. And now oh, yeah. you were going ten years before you had your big break as such. Yeah. So yeah, I I've, I think about that time and uh, remember. The people that I would meet along the way in that uh, 2014 and 2015, musicians who had had that moment, you know, people Mm -hmm. that we had looked up to or, you know, or are aware of at least who would come up to us at festivals and be like, oh, you guys are, you guys are amazing, you know. Um, But hey, don't forget to look up and (laughs) enjoy Mm -hmm. this moment because it will never happen again. And I was so buried within the work of it that I was like, yeah, cool, cool. Like, appreciate it, you know. And then years later, I would be like, oh, wow, I, I did miss that. Like, I was mm. just, you know, you're you're just like on the grindstone, just it's the work working. ethic again. Yeah, It goes yeah, back to can't. what you were saying. It's the work ethic. You have a moment and you're like, right, I have to now m- maximize the effect of that moment. So it's yeah. not just a flash in the pan. Yeah, you're like, we <laughs> we can't stop. And uh, yeah. that, that was... You know, we've talked about having issues with our album that came after that album, and uh, and you know, there's songs on that that I really, that I really, I think are great songs, and I love them. But the issue with that record, you know, fans don't like it when you disrespect an album that they love. They're like, "What's yeah. wrong with them?" So I feel bad for that reason. You're never supposed to admit your mistakes as a performer. Mm. <laughs> you can grin, mm-hmm. you can smile through them, and these things. You just keep going. I know that, but you know, maybe it was a mistake to call that out, but it's to call out a time. When, uh, yeah, we felt like we we had to strike while the iron was hot and just keep going. And we kind of lost ourselves within the, all of it, the total whirlwind of a wonderful moment and didn't get to yeah. enjoy the wonderful moment. Like exactly what you're saying. Yeah. It's, uh, I, you know, I was talking to a friend last night at dinner and uh, she was talking about this idea of, you know, really when, you, when you're grasping for that, that thing or grasping it, anything in your life, that tends to be the thing that makes it go away. And, and I think of it in the sense of if you appreciate every little, like the smallest thing, the smallest joys, if you appreciate them as a success or a, a step up or at least a step along the way, you just have appreciation in your life. You have like a greater, mm-hmm. like, I don't know, to have a win every day, it makes it so you can get through the days. The days are hard. Yeah, <laughs> You know, life is hard and it's long. It's not short. It's very long. <laughs> and we need, you know, I, I, it's just a thing about appreciating yourself and the work that you do. I think it actually makes you, uh, it, it makes you progress in, in just a natural way instead of, you know, if, if, you, if you fail to do that one big thing, 
you know, what is that big? Like when you get there, you will, you, you won't, you might not even appreciate it. You know? Yeah, I completely agree. And I think I'm big on, in recent years in particular, on, on trying to reframe things, reframe how mm-hmm. I see things, how I perceive things. Cause there's so much that we can't change, but there's loads that we can reframe. And the easy example I always give is, is imposter syndrome. So mm-hmm. for me, moving into into acting and film and TV, and we're going to talk about that too. There's that imposter syndrome thing. Is the is the kind of fear that you're not meant to be here, that you don't deserve to be here, and all that kind of thing. For me, the reframing of that was, nah, I'm not meant to be here. How 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 fucking great is this? Yeah. <laughs> like like like, like exactly. there's so many from where I come from. I've got a stutter. All these different things. The amount of things I've done with my voice, I'm not meant to have done any of this. So now I can just revel in all of it. Every time I'm on a film set, it's like, I'm not scared or intimidated. I'm excited to be there because... Oh, that's cool. Yeah, you're damn right. I shouldn't be... I'm not meant to have done any of this, but I get to. Yeah. So that's a, that's kind of a gift. Well, that's a power. That's actually power. Yeah. I, yeah. I found on a film set is like, I'm, I'm not even supposed to be here. So if I'm not good, then it's your fault. Uh, yeah, it's all, yeah, yeah. Like all of y'all are quality control, so I'm, I'm gonna yeah. do the best I can. But I'm not supposed to be yeah. here. <laughs> you put me here. This is on you. Yeah. And again, it's kind of the difference of working on something that's film and TV are such big productions, whereas mm-hmm. a band and music, it's kind of in your control in some way. Do yes. you know what I mean? You've got more creative control. It's it's your thing. So it took me a while to get used to being able. to to let go of that control uh-huh. by stepping into film sets and things like that and knowing that all I can do is turn up and do my best yeah. and then it's over to other people to deal with that. Because that was a weird transition f- from music. Like particularly I started off in spoken word and that was partly because mm. I loved rap but had no one around here to make beats for me. So spoken word was a thing I could do off my own back. Yeah. And if I fail, it's my fault. And if I succeed, it's my fault. So that's a big difference of switching industries. So, I mean, how did you find that? Like, you you, you made your debut in The Changeling. I mean, we've not even mentioned Kelly Marcel yet, but th- yeah. there's love. There's, there's the most love in the world there for Kelly Marcel. Yeah. So, so Kelly is absolutely amazing. Yeah, and you know, yeah. it was Kelly that gave me the opportunity to be in the show through being a, a fan of Future Islands mm-hmm. and saw us play. And yeah, she was like, I think that's the crazy asshole I need in my TV show. That's yeah, that's yeah. that crazy guy. So it was just kind of one of these. It was just kind of one of these moments. You know, I didn't know what was happening. I was just doing the thing that I do with uh, with my friends, uh, playing a show, and got the opportunity to audition for uh, this television show. But the thing is, like, I had just when I got the call from her, I had just gotten out of this relationship in Sweden. I was very confused about what what the hell was happening with my life because I'd you know I was engaged. I had an apartment there. I you know mm-hmm. had a whole life planned and uh and don't make plans um <laughs> that's a little the disclaimer don't make hard plans you know uh yeah. be open in your life uh to change um so if i'd have gotten that if i'd have gotten that ask uh two three months prior i wouldn't have done it you know i would have been mm-hmm. like nope i am happily with my partner through a hard pandemic i am just going to be here i'm not going away to you know you people are crazy yeah. i'm not an actor but I was yeah. at that point in my life where I didn't know what was happening. You know, uh, I had what I thought was my life kind of taken away from me. And so I was at that point of just saying, just like, sure, why not? Like, I'll 
I'll try this. I'll try that. You know, I, I remember hitting my agent just a couple of weeks before and being like, call up the producers, see who wants to work, you know, time to mm. go to work. Love is, <laughs> love is dead. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. let's go to work. I'm going to go to LA. I must create and, art. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was my goal in getting out of that relationship. It was funny. I was like, I'm going to go into every single studio in Los Angeles and, uh, and just go to work. And, uh, yeah. and and make make something happen because I wanted to cover up what I was going through. So, so in a way, like when Kelly gave me this opportunity, it allowed me to it to do exactly what I wanted to do, which was put myself into a difficult situation and try to navigate it. So that I, I mean, pro, I mean to be honest, probably so that I didn't have to navigate my own difficult situation. Allowing mm-hmm. myself, you know, so much of uh, my work as a writer is that personal work you know, that digging into these feelings and these things. But I think I needed to dig. I, I wanted to dig into something that wasn't myself. I felt really strange at that time. Um, so I'm kind of spinning my wheels, but it, it is, Thank it's such know. a weird time to think about. And in a way, like looking back on that, you know, it was six months, six and a half months of filming for The Changeling. There's parts I'm like, when, when did I do that? You know, it, yeah. it feels like something that happened to me more than it felt like something I did. And, you know, a lot of, I'd say the hardest part about the job was just the, was just the waiting. You know, I don't think people realize mm. how much of acting is not, it's, it's like five minutes of your whole day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I got, my, my goddaughter is enjoying drama at school and I got them a role on, on a Netflix thing. Oh, cool. It was a tiny role and it was two or three days of waiting around filming little bits and they're in it for about two seconds. Yeah. But it was the perfect introduction to the industry. It was this like, is what it no, is. this is what it is. Yeah. If, if you're enjoying it, let's show you the reality of it. And it was exciting as well. It was yeah. exciting to be there and be on a film set. But it's also like, here's all sides of it. Now make your decision. Yeah. Well, I think I think music in a way gave me, it gave me a leg up because, I mean, you know, like being on the road is... Mm-hmm. You, you know, as you say, like, hurry up and wait. It's the same in the film industry. It's just, uh, yeah. you know, you spend yeah. 10 hours a day traveling and setting up, and then you get to do your one, one and a half hours on the stage. But so much of it yeah. is is the getting there and the waiting and the mental fortitude to just, like, be away from everything for uh, for a few months. Or not even the mental fortitude. Sometimes it's how great your powers of disassociation are <laughs> to get you through mm-hmm. To enter the zombie phase, as I call it, which is about six weeks into a tour, um, or an yeah. a, where you just become, you do your job amazingly, but you're not really a human. You don't yeah. feel yeah. anymore. Your body is so broken that that uh, it doesn't even really hurt. And uh, alcohol is like blood, uh, and you yeah. need blood. <laughs> I, I, I always remember people kind of asking, because I'd give quite kind of intense performances I'd have people kind of ask, how do you do that night after night after night? And it's like, that's the bit that gets me through everything else. Yeah, exactly. I wouldn't be able to do all of this if I didn't get to do that. That's the one bit of the day I'm I'm living for. It's to have that, those yeah. feelings and those emotions. Because I have to, you have to go into that zombie mode for so much of the rest of the, of touring life. Yeah. You know? Have you ever done a tour uh, working on a crew? Or anything like no. that? Because I did. Oh, I, I, I drove a tour once. I drove a tour. Okay. So I've got a, a record label as well. And when oh, nice. one of it was just as I'd kind of stopped making music, one of our rappers was over, B. Dolan, and we just had this new band, War and Peace, release a record. So we did a label tour. Yeah. And I was merch man, tour manager, driver. <laughs> but yeah, it was, yeah. I mean, it was all a low key tour. It was like a two week thing, but that was just, yeah. 
I was everything because I was like, I've done all of that and you're all kind of, you know, I, I guess at different you, levels. I guess if you have five jobs, it could be okay. <laughs> you just like yeah. don't have any time to even think about how hard it is. Years ago, I did a couple tours doing merch for, yeah. for friends, bands that were bigger than us at the time. Um, yeah, yeah, do, for friends. Um, but it was really like the hardest touring I'd ever done because I didn't, yeah, get the chance to perform. To get the good bit. Yeah, yeah, and I was just like, man, I don't know how people do this. You know, it makes you respect crew a lot more. But, you know, everybody has the thing they do in life, you know? I think, yeah. like, for our, our, our sound person, Ian, he loves doing sound. That's like, yeah, yeah. that's also his show, you know? Allison on Lights, that's her show. You know, she's really proud of, of what she does. And so, mm-hmm. it is, there is still an artistry um, that's very, very important to the show on their side. And also, it is funny because our, our merch guy who's been with us for, he's one of our oldest friends, our buddy Dan, uh, has probably been with us about 12 years. And he yeah. is, the merch world is his world. And he's just I was like, going to say, I guarantee he's here. meticulous, knows oh, he, everything. Yeah, don't touch this. Don't, yeah. You're like, hey, Dan, are you doing okay today? He's like, yes, no one's <laughs> yeah. spoken to me. I'm very happy. <laughs> it's like, okay, great, <laughs> bud. Great. Yeah. Do you need anything? No, I'm fine. Bring me some bananas. <laughs> I'd, I'd get into that mode on tour anyway. Like when we'd have a new support act with us, if they were coming like in the van or whatever, on the first day, I'd kind of say, look, if I go quiet for a few days, I'm not mad. There's nothing wrong. You've not done anything wrong. I just need to go into my own world a little yeah. bit on the road because that's that's what I would do. But I'm so always so worried about seeming rude mm-hmm. or seeming like a diva or anything else. So I'd at the start just be like, look, if I've just got my headphones on and I'm not really interacting, it's cool. Like, yeah, we'll interact at dinner or whatever else. But you know, I just you get to that point on a tour where it's like I need to shut myself off from from the world. Yeah, it's a that's a, and that's a hard one because it is it's so important to remember the beginning of why you do the thing, but you can be in such pain, <laughs> physical mm. or emotional, um, or just uh, yeah, like like you said, like I completely understand trying to shut off. I always remember this story. When I was about 16, I went, I'm going to throw somebody under the bus right now. (laughs) (laughs) Exclusive, exclusive, exclusive. (laughs) Now, I went to, I drove with some friends to see uh, a show. I grew up, I grew up like in the sticks of North Carolina and the nearest city was Raleigh, North Carolina, which is the capital. It's about three hours away from where I grew up. And just on the other side is Chapel Hill, which has an, uh, I don't, I wonder if you ever played the Cat's Cradle in Chapel Hill, but yeah, I think so. it's like a legendary venue. And, you know, being a kid growing up in North Carolina, it's the place, it's like the first step, you know, if, mm. you know, getting to play the Cat's Cradle is a dream come true. Yeah, 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 I yeah, saw yeah. some of my first shows there and, you know, I grew up a hip hop head, but I went, I was probably about 16 and I drove with some buddies to see the living legends and it was idea and abilities were there of Mexican yeah. descent opened. Like it was a yeah. Like looking back, it was, and I didn't even know of Mexican descent was on the tour, but um, but anyways, it was a crazy show. But somewhere towards the front of the night, before Living Legends had gone on, I saw Eli and out front, and he was on his, yeah. he was like on a BlackBerry or something. Someone, you know, this is what twenty four years ago. He was just like yeah. on a little flip phone, probably texting with like a lady or his lady or some shit. I, I I guess I can't speculate on that. But I went up to him and just like tried to talk to him, and he. He just, he, he would give me like a one word answer, but I was also being a fanboy. I was like, are you Eli? I love your yeah, music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been listening yeah. to your music for two years. But when you're 15, 16, that's like a lifetime. Yeah. So I was like, you're, you're my favorite. 
And uh, he just kept turning, uh-huh, 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 till he almost did like a 360. And I was really, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, I don't think he wants to talk. And I was really kind of injured in the moment. Um, and then just, you know, three, four years later, I was in college and I had started my first band and I was getting my first like uh, experience with talking to people outside of a show. And, and it was really important to me to not do that, to give people the yeah. time. But fast forward another 10 years and I'm outside trying to smoke a cigarette before or after a show and I've got people hounding me and I'm broken in my spirit and in my body mm-hmm. and, and I'm going through something and these people are trying to talk to me and I'm, I'm doing that thing. And then I was like, yeah. I'm an asshole. <laughs> like, like I finally understood. I've become Eli's well, cats in the cradle. Well, <laughs> oh, me and Eli are cats in the cradle. But no, but the, the bigger thing was. Eli coming up to you before a show and you ignoring him. <laughs> oh, that would have been the ultimate revenge. No, but the, the truth was it made me, well, it made me feel like an asshole in that moment. But then it made me feel like an asshole for telling the story that I'm telling you right now about Eli for so many years because I had no yeah. idea what he was going through. I don't yeah, know. I don't know what his day was. I didn't know anything about being in a tour bus or, you know, yeah. in a in a van and traveling around with, I mean, what, the living legends are probably like 12, 12 dudes all. It must be the wildest. I love the living legends yeah. so much. One of the most fun live groups uh, yeah. I've ever seen. I, I was going to say, I want to get into rap a little bit because there's so much... Yeah, exciting stuff. I want to know kind of who you're into. You mentioned an idea there. One of my first kind of imposter syndrome moments was going on stage in Texas at one point to do a set. An idea and Buck were side stage to watch. And and they're just kind of (laughs) chatting and interacting. And it was for Strange Famous, so... Sage and B. Dole and all that were introducing me. Wow. And I'm there. Again, this is... It's a weird thing because when they're all on your CD shelf... Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're not real humans. So then when we're out there... And again, we were on the same label, a lot of us, so it was Mm -hmm. a normal thing. But it was the first time I'd had that. And it happened to be as I was walking to do a show. So I didn't... I couldn't allow myself to fanboy out too much because I had to be in performance mode. So it was just kind of just walk past and go like, oh, shit. (laughs) <laughs> how, how cool is that? And then, yeah, then yeah. go on and do your thing. That's but yeah, what, like, who are you into? Who are your influences there? Because I want to talk about your vocal influences in Future Islands and as as Hemlock Ernst in in your rapping. Because like speaking of Strange Famous, there was a guy on Strange Famous called Curtis Plum who was so Curtis good, uh-huh. He's so unusual. I think you'd enjoy him. He's really unusual, but. Okay. I remember speaking to him in Texas that time, and he described his main vocal influence as Catherine Hepburn, Whoa. which sounds bizarre. And as soon as I he'd said that, I could hear it. It's I like, love yeah, it. that's yeah, love it. yeah, exactly. That's exactly his voice. He's rapping in that voice. What? And he was from like, where was he from? He was from that's hilarious, Iowa, I think. And he was just this this weird dude. But yeah, amazing stuff. And obviously, your vocal styles vary. In, yeah, from when you're 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 singing to when you're rapping. So, who are your rap influences? And then we'll get deep into who your kind of your musical influences are. Well, it is interesting because I, I do feel like I feel a freedom to do kind of whatever I want. Um, you yeah. know, especially within within rap because I'm I should say because of rap and especially being influenced and loving um, 
the West Coast styles, like Project Blowed stuff that I would discover when I was, you know, 15, 16 years old, who I always, I always thought like the West Coast underground really explored style. Yeah. Different than the East Coast underground. A lot of the East Coast underground was more about, uh, I've talked about this before, like East Coast was like how hard you are or, or having that had a hard edge to it, at least to show, you know, like what I loved about hip hop that I connected with was the uh, MCs who shared kind of stories of vulnerability and, you know, places that they weren't talking about what they had. And <laughs> this is before yeah. the, the Jiggy era. Um, which to me was uh, despicable. Um, <laughs> I, I always remember hearing Scarface do yeah, both. Scarface be is the a- hardest in the world and then the most vulnerable in the world. Yeah, that is like, Scarface- I'm hearing this guy that's terrifying me and then I'm getting emotional as I'm I'm, I'm connecting. Yeah, know? no, Scarface is an amazing example. But, you know, early on it was like Karis one was huge for yeah. me and listening to all the Boogie Down production stuff. Yeah. And, and really when I got into rap, it was because of, of a few records, um, Grave Digger Six Feet Deep was the first, yeah. and then it was Diggable Planets Blowout Comb, De La Soul Balloon Mind State, and Channel Live Station mm-hmm. Identification, which is a really unknown record uh, channel. Do you remember Channel Live? Um, they yeah. had, I think they only put out one record, and it was all produced by Karis One, actually. There's a really great song in there. It's the, it has like a little child singing the chorus. It's the Alpha and the Omega. We're going to crush you, sucker MCs like Sega. It's the Alpha. And, yeah, uh, that rings a bell, you yeah, know. They were so yeah. good. Their channel, I forget those two MCs' names. They were on some, uh, some Karis One solo albums. But anyways, mm. those records kind of were my, my intro in that my brother recognized that I would not stop listening to his Gravedigger's Six Feet Deep record, which I was obsessed yeah. with. Gravediggers are a great example, though, of what you were saying about kind of not having any rules. Exactly. Not, being, not even stuck to reality. Like, they would yeah. go to, like, prior to people will cite Eminem or Odd Future or whomever else who will just go so weird and surreal and dark and and tonally all over the place, like, both topic-wise and vocally. And Gravediggers, Diggers were, yeah, an amazing example of that. Yeah, I mean, Wouldn't and even then. I think Too Poetic, who he has some of the most, you know, because I, I was talking about the styles before, like, to me, East Coast was more about, like, the toughness of it. And mm-hmm. to me, like, the West Coast was more about how hard you could style, like, how hard mm-hmm. you could go. Like, to me, West Coast Underground looked like graffiti, you know, just like wild yeah. style Something about it, the way it moved me. And then I realized that that was like a language as a, as a shield and a sword. And that's kind of what I saw as a child. Like, like uh, with the East Coast, it was galvanizing your stories of hardship and, and being strong in it, which is something that I really, that's what I try to do with Future Islands. That's what I try to do on stage, which is showing vulnerability, but through through masculine energy to actually play with like gender norms and how the, what it is to be a man, you know, and breaking yeah. down this idea. And, you know, that's, not, that's, I'm sure not what like Karis one was going for, but when you tell, <laughs> when you tell a story, you know, uh, while you were at home with your mother, afraid of the dark, I was sleeping out in prospect park, eating one meal every 20 or every 48 hours, you know, and that's, yeah, yeah, and he's yeah, just yeah, like, yeah. that's not pretty. That's not glamorous. Yeah. You know, he's talking yeah. about, the times that he was homeless trying to just to eat and how that made him strive towards his ambition to rap, to to make something of his life. 
Um, yeah. So that that's the sword and the shield. But on the West, where maybe I didn't get the message as strong, it was people that were building walls with like tongue twisting and cadence mm. breakdowns and like just like time signature switch ups. Like, what are you doing? You know, it's like it's like walls versus uh, briar patches. You know, like yeah. thorn yeah, 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 gardens. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and so I that was more what I went towards because when I was 17, 18, I didn't have anything to say, you know, like, I'd be like, I am tied to the earth and the trees, you know, <laughs> like these yeah, kinds yeah, of yeah, the, yeah. My, the natural raps. But then I was like, well, if I can, if I can like push style and, and that, that's kind of where I went at the same time, there's like anti-pop consortium on the East, you know, in New York, which are hugely influential to me and uh, just people that create worlds through through their words um, yeah. or feelings, like emotions, like the way High Priest's voice is, is just like, yeah. it's it's like floating in zero gravity, like away from a, slowly away from the spaceship. <laughs> it's yeah. his voice. Well, that whole era, that kind of, I always feel like Cannibal Ox oh, were yeah. in there as well was just feeling like- That's still like a perfect album. I've, I've never thing. heard before. Yeah, completely yeah. agreed. And it was just like, I've never heard this. And it sounds- Hard as fuck, but yeah. it also sounds like a trip and a dream and all yeah. these other things. It's it's beautiful as well. So it's got yeah. that hardness and that vulnerability in there, which is yeah, a hell of a thing. Yeah, that th- I, I was actually. I guess I'm sad that they didn't. Nothing ever really came again. That record is so so perfect. And then you're like, well, yeah, that would really suck if that was the record you made. And then you're like, let's make another record. Yeah, we're well, let's leave it there. The problem with touring with a fair few people of that kind of indie rap scene in America is everyone knows each other so well, they know their tricks. And I was on tour with someone, I won't say who, and they just said, you know, like, because I was always like, Vast Air is just, I could could listen to him for, for, for hours. They were like, you know how easy it is to be Vast Air? You just slow every word <laughs> yeah. down and it, it sounds more impactful. Yeah. Every syllable is important. <laughs> and that's what KRS did too. That's what KRS, like, oh, yeah, that he, was, he would do that. KRS was I my am, number yeah. one guy as well. And it's like, as soon as people start to break it down, you go, oh no, that's kind of, it's a, it's a trick. It's easy to do here. And it's like, yeah, yeah. don't say that. Just, just just let me be lost in the magic. <laughs> <laughs> now, that is, a, that is a good point. Well, I, again, there's so many places I want to go around and talk about. And we've only got a, a limited amount of time for all decency. But what were your kind of influences with Future Islands then? Like, like, like who who jump out to you? Because again, <sighs> f- f- for me, kind of driven synth pop kind of sounds... The UK's got such a mad history in it. So I was wondering, yeah. yeah, I wonder if there's UK influence, if there's, yeah. And and just as you say, in your vocal style, in the freedom there to kind of go however you want and wherever you want. Yeah, I mean, I think it kind of began early on. I mean, you know, going back, I mean, it always confuses people that they're like, oh, you're into rap music and you also rap? Like, how does that figure into Future Islands? But it's so much of the uh, the way that, we've always created from the time before Future Islands, we had a band called Art Lord and Self-Portraits. And it was, we would basically, you know, we were all learning our instruments uh, together. You know, Garrett had never played a keyboard before. He was a guitarist. And William had never played bass before. He was a guitarist. I had never, like, sing in school or something or, like, with my mom. But I I never wanted to be in a band. I was a, I was a rapper. That was my... That was my identity and, and uh, my joy and how I felt that I could make it how I fit into music was through rapping. Mm. So then coming into creating with Art Lord, you know, 
there were a certain number of things. It was more of a conceptual art piece at first, and we were really aping craft work in in all in like love. You know, we we wanted to desperately be like craft work. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. three keyboards, bass guitar was the instrumentation. But then, you know, like I'd never heard Joy Division until I got to college. And that mm. smacked me in the face. Like, you know, because I was like, yeah. I was just like a hip hop and jazz kid. I didn't get bands. Like bands weren't, you know, I listened to some punk music and stuff where like me and Garrett would rock like Slayer in, the, in his pickup truck and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. But yeah, I, di- I didn't really, I didn't really know about underground rock music of any kind i i say rock yeah. funnily because i don't i don't really think but anyways hearing joy division was like part of it was i didn't feel like emotions came through in the same way through like uh band format music i felt like and i still talk to this day about the ideas that you know uh the thing about the mc is that they it's like the only music genre where the person really references themselves and yeah. uh you may take it as like, it's a big up. Like, it's like, it, I mean, that's part of it is like, it's just like graffiti, like hear my name, see my name. Like, this is how yeah. we, this is how we get up and this is how we get known. But it's also about giving, it's like manifesting your own personal strength by putting yeah. yourself in it and by saying it. But there's yeah. something so personal and we're bands. And I mean, it's something that I try to do as a musician in a band is to kind of speak within a universal language that can reach as many people as possible through future islands. But I still am very self-referential because of because of this hip-hop influence and 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 mm. that those ideas about telling these personal stories. But when I heard Joy Division, it was the song uh Digital and I could feel like his emotion exploding, you know. It was yeah. just like yeah. I could I could like feel his body vibrating with something that he couldn't hold on to. And that's what I connected with. I connected with, well, also just the, the, those bass lines, hooky, baby. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that propulsive force. But, but so Ian Curtis was a really early influence within Art Lord, main, but more so like within the dance of it. Like in Art Lord, yeah. I used to do the robot and stuff. I don't, I don't break out the yeah. robot in Future Island shows anymore. People would, yeah. people might freak out though. It'd be kind of fun. But, but it's those, time to break it out. It's time to break it Just out. Just as a note, it's time to break out the robot. <laughs> uh, Pick a song on the new album that's the one that's going to bring the robot out and see. But it is like, uh, see those, what it does. Those early songs were, we would write a chorus and then I would freestyle the verses, you know? Mm. And that was hip hop, you know? I was a freestyle yeah. artist. So yeah. I was like, yeah. Okay, cool. We wrote eight uh, instrumentals, and I ha- I haven't written the lyrics yet, but we can still play them live. So we just go on stage Amazing. and play songs, and then just like freestyle it, and then be like, oh, "Okay, cool. I kind of like that thing I said." Or you know, you kind of like fleshing out melodies in a improvisational way, which is something that I already understood. Like I already understood that as a as a freestyle MC, mm-hmm. and that's still like part of how I create today, which is kind of that. It's that first strike of when the guys send me, you know, when Garrett sends me an instrumental, I only have to listen to about 15 seconds of it. And then I'm like, okay, turn it off. Like, don't listen to any more. Yeah. And then wait, yeah. whether it's a day or three weeks or two months until that time where I'm like, okay, I'm sitting down. I, I, I feel something's in me. I need to write a song. And then I'll put mm-hmm. on that, that song. And the thing is, I don't want to overplay it and burn it out. 
Yeah. Um, I don't know if you ever were. were you, did you did you freestyle? Was that a part of? No. Oh, no. Okay. And I, I I never had that that angle of again toured with loads of people who are amazing freestylers. But yeah. I, I was always the kind of yeah, just I'd want to go away and craft. I think it's like I used yeah, to do understandable stencil art rather than graffiti art, and I think that mm. plays into it. It's the equivalent. I wanted to sit at home and create every intricate part and have it all under my control and then present it rather than have that freedom. Are you Banksy? <laughs> Did you just, is this a, a soft disclosure? <laughs> Genuinely, I had an episode of this podcast where people thought we had given away the identity of Banksy. Oh, really? And it got reported on the news in America, in Australia, <laughs> in the all over Europe. It was amazing, but... Yeah, let's go with it's me and we'll see if they get if they run with it this time. <laughs> uh that's funny. Yeah, but it is like that thing, you know, that's that that was the way we were all we all kind of brought something to the to the table from our different mm. our different backgrounds. Like Garrett was a metal head, you know. He he, yeah. he didn't listen yeah. to like Euro pop, which is kind of what Art Lord was. Um William was the only one who really understood the kind of synth synth bands and the kind of world that we were actually, I don't know if I should say aspiring to, but kind of what our, where our sound kind of fit. William was the only one who kind of understood that because he grew up with two older sisters who like, you know, his first cassette was the Thompson twins. And, you know, yeah, yeah, he, yeah, he was yeah, just yeah. like, he was the one who showed me Joy Division. He showed me The Cure. And then there's people like, yeah, like The Cure. I didn't, I didn't get them till I was probably about 20 years old. And then it just like, hit me like a ton of bricks and like Robert Smith is such a phenomenal for me such a phenomenal writer and his his mm-hmm. ability with his voice is uncanny and he still does it like he still has yeah, this yeah. strange powerful amazing voice high high voice i don't know how he yeah. does it but but you know the the influences are all over i mean there's probably even a little bit of like ghost ghost face bad singing is uh, an influence on me been way too long <laughs> oh i was going to say again you know, the the, the, things just that the freestyle element makes so much make sense cuz if you're improvising singing it's going to have that 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 freedom of where the tone goes of where things go cuz you've not got the do you know what I mean? If you've got the words written out, you know how that goes. If you haven't, you're going to go tonally up and exactly. down and deep and high. And that makes sense for that starting like that is the perfect starting ground to build to then become your style as such. Yeah, yeah. Because I am like, I mean, then that's the funny thing is so much is like the things that I learned through MCs and style um, mm. and something, you know, I'll still write a song like probably the last... You know, this is a un- unreleased material, but the last song that I wrote for Future Islands, I was really proud of it because I was like, "Like, hey guys, here's a demo, and this is a different style than I've done before." And that's pretty cool to be 18 years and 21 years yeah. into it with those two guys and be like, "I found a different style, a uh, different cadence and flow and approach." And mm-hmm. and and you know, I think when you allow yourself that. It, it just opens the possibilities up, you know, if you feel that you need to, we have a sound, this is the way we sound. And, you know, Future Islands does have a sound, you know, within within the music and within the messages, within the stories, there is a pretty strong through line. Uh, but, I, but I also, I take that as us defining ourselves. I, I feel yeah. like when you hear our music, you're like, that's Future Islands. <laughs> and I yeah. think that's great, you know, in a world yeah. where there are so many, so many bands, um, that probably form every day and and just trying to make a name for yourself and be uh yeah yeah just just 
trying to be yourself. I mean, that is so much of, once again, like rap for me, which is just that holding on to your your space in this world and feeling like you you can share your voice, that your voice matters, which yeah. is another message of, of future islands. But it's, you know, it's something that we, we practice to show people, you know, not to tell people, yeah. but to be like, yeah, we can, you know, we're just four kind of normal looking dudes <laughs> and we're, we're doing this thing and it's really cool. Like that is a powerful place to be. And I think if you open yourself up to people or just natural with people or natural on stage, you know, sans fashion or trends um, and you just like mm -hmm. stick to your guns and try to be honest and sincere about who you are. That's something that gives people, it gives people strength to see that. Mm -hmm. um, at least I believe, you know, these are definitely ideals, you know, it's, it's idealistic, but, but yeah, I mean, if I can hold on to some idealism, then, <laughs> then yeah. it's okay. You've this world a, will beat it out of you. <laughs> You've got, you can see on my face a slightly glazed look because my mind's been blown by the realization that you're equal parts Ian Curtis, Robin Smith, Ghostface, and yeah. Bismarck. <laughs> and Grand Pooba, don't forget. And Grand Pooba, yeah, it's, it's that perfect combination. Uh, I, I love it. Well, um, I want to rewind back. And again, it, it is something you will have talked about so many times, but one of my favorite things in the world is really great musical performances on late night TV. And the reason for that is because they're quite rare, because it's a really weird scenario and weird situation. Mm -hmm. Like The one late night show we did when tour in America was the Carson Daly show. Uh, okay, yeah. And it's not a natural situation for performing. Like, I enjoyed it, and I, I, I saw it for the first time in years recently. I was like, yeah, that was all right. That, yeah, yeah. That worked okay. But it's so unusual. Like, there was one, there was a, a Shakira performance this year on Jimmy Fallon, that blew my mind. But as I said, you've got one of those on Letterman mm -hmm. 10 years ago. How did it feel getting booked for that? And then how did it feel after? Because as you say, you were 10 years in your career. A lot of these yeah. things, it is, you know, you've got that new band energy. Mm -hmm. What what did you feel going in that you had to, or did you feel that this is your make or break kind of nah. moment at this point? Nah? Nah, I mean, I think that's probably... I think part of the power of that performance and why it came off in a certain way and meant something to people was the fact that for what we wanted when we went after, you know, uh, music as a lifestyle, as a, the goal was to, the goal at 23 was to uh, start taking the band serious, go on tour and make our art our life, you know, live off the art. And by the time two years before Letterman happened, we had, we had achieved that. And yeah. You know, it was it was different. You know, I often talk about this, like when I was 26, 27, I think I dealt with a lot more like envy and jealousy and mm -hmm. the one, like seeing other people succeed and wanting just like a piece, you know, just kind of our albums were overlooked by music media. Um, the press didn't really care about what we did, but but we kept going. And, and we were shown by our friends, like uh, first our friends, Valiant Thor, who were a North Carolina band, who just went on the road for years and you know and they they achieved a success by just believing in themselves and then and then it was our friend Dan Deacon who showed us who was more like kind of in our world still a very close friend yeah. and and the score he did the score for the changing which is such a cool connection yeah Dan also showed us you know he I feel like 2006 and 7 which is the first two years of when we switched over to Future Islands he just he did something like close to 220 shows a year for two years straight. And at the mm -hmm. end of that, 
he, you know, he got all of this press. And because the, the thing is, like, when you have those moments, if you've never played a show, if you're this young band, then you're just kind of the, the people watching, they can can connect on the face level of whatever the performance is, but they don't have any frame of reference, you know, and there's no like history to go back into a young band like for us or for Dan, you know, um, we, we saw it with him first. When he found success and people were championing his music in the press for the first time, I think with his record Acorn Master and then Spider-Man of the Rings, mm-hmm. which is such a wild record. It was mm-hmm. like, there's thousands of people around the country who are like, I saw that guy play in a basement, you know, like, like yeah. he played in my friend's living room. <laughs> and that's like the frame of reference. The same thing happened with, with uh, Letterman for us, where people had those moments. They were like, oh my God, I, I saw these guys you know, play to nobody somewhere. And and they weren't mm. lying. <laughs> here they are. <laughs> because we were, yeah, yeah. We, for years, we played around the country to nobody until we were playing to some people and then it was more people. And then we were actually living off of these shows. And then we finally got the opportunity uh, to play Letterman. But the thing was, in we the, the last album before that was put out towards the end of 2011 and we had been told that we were going to get Letterman. Right. We'd been told that it was coming through and then it just never materialized. And, yeah. and that record kind of went under the radar to what we had hoped it would do. I actually, there's part of me that still thinks that is one of the, our third record, which is possibly our most experimental. It's, I used to think it might be the best record. <laughs> um, yeah. Now I'm feeling really confident about the new record, but there's something about that record, but it it largely went under the radar. And there, and because of that, we felt like the label didn't get behind it and these things. So then we made the change to 4AD. And then once again, they're like, you know, we're going to get you on Letterman. And we're like, sure, whatever. Like, it doesn't matter yeah. now, you know, it doesn't. And they're like, yeah, well, you know, you should do it if it comes through. And we're like, okay, what, you know, whatever. Because we'd already, we'd achieved these things. But, oh, but what I was going to say when I was 26, 27, I, I wanted, I really wanted this thing. I was grasping at this thing, as we were talking about earlier. Yeah. And then by the time I was, you know, I was, Letterman happened uh, two weeks before my 30th birthday. And I was at peace. Like, look, we made this thing. Like, we built, we built careers on, on our hard work. And, like, we found people around the country and all over Europe and the UK who, really care about our art, support our lives. Like we made it, you know? Mm. So I think that, that being in that place of peace, like, and feeling like it wasn't, um, like we hadn't pulled the wool over someone's eyes, you know, that we had done it on our hard work, that that helped that calm kind of settle in our lives. And then we played Letterman and then everything exploded for a year or two. And, uh, and then I got lost, in, you know, in the insanity of that moment and uh, and went back. You know, that that's, was the hardest thing about after Letterman was kind of, I reverted back to this, oh, people care. And I lost myself for a couple of years um, in, right. in trying to once again, uh, you know, uh, perform for a perceived audience. You know, this yeah. new perceived audience that, you know. Yeah that actually they aren't the ones that are going to support you. The audience that was already there are the ones. And, and there will be people that you pick up in those moments um, that discover you and continue to discover. You know, that clip is still going around. But, you know, there, there are lifelong fans that have been made because of that. But it's not because of you're writing for them. It's because of the what you were writing before. You know? What you were already writing, who you where, were then. Yeah, as you said, you the, already the timing of where you'd got to. Exactly. And again, 
completely relate there. I always remember the first time I said, we, we with me and Dan Lasak, our first single was the one that blew up and got in the charts. Mm-hmm. But even on that journey, we have originally got picked up by the late night shows, like or radio shows, by Zane Lowe, by Rob the Bank, by all of these. But then we got some some daytime airplay. And then we started to think that that's what we needed. Yeah. It was, it was only in halfway through the second album, I think, that there was the realisation. It was like, well, if Zane Lowe plays us in the evening, it'll be to a quarter of the amount of people that the daytime will hear, but they'll be our people. Exactly. If we're being played in the daytime, it's a load of people who are probably going to go, what the fuck is this? Yeah, yeah. Why is this on my... So it's a bigger audience, but it's not our audience. And yeah. you realise that it's better to be in the right place than be in as many places as possible at once. Well, it depends on you know. what you... I mean, some people don't mind it. That spotlight really... And and I, I, I made peace with that. But the thing about being in the spotlight is that you, you have twice or three times or four times as many people to be critical of you. Um, but, to give it an opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah but, yeah, but yeah, part yeah. of being an artist, you know, I, I believe, you know, when you go to art school, I went to art school, you have to go through a critique. You know, every mm. piece goes through a critique. It is part of the process. So I also have to accept that that, that is what happens. And, and also the other thing is when you create true divisive art, that, that's like making real art. You know, if you create yeah. something that's polarizing, that pulls people in different directions then you actually create something that creates its own conversation, you know? So if you have someone yeah. go, I hate this, and you have someone go, but I love it, then there's a fight, and then you can step away <laughs> and yeah. let them hash it out. And then their friends get involved on both sides. And then and then random people are like, oh, well, I need to check out this art. I need to see this thing. And then it just creates its own thing. That's what happened with Letterman. Yeah, Not by our hand. We were just doing, once again, like, we were doing what we did and believed in. Yeah. You know, the one thing about that performance was most of performing it, I was just trying to, I was like, is my zipper up? Do not slip. Do not fall. <laughs> and then I was in my head going, are you going to do the growl? Nah, you shouldn't do the growl. But maybe I should do the growl. Nah, I don't do the growl. I, I feel like wow. I should do it. Nah, don't do it. <laughs> and then I was like, well, it's done. And so- That's fascinating to I don't hear. Even, the, the, I don't even remember yeah. the- you know, I kind of just was in a transcendent blackout state during the performance yeah. and just completely in my head. Just like, connect with the audience. Connect with the audience. Don't fall. Don't fall. Are you going to do the growl? Don't fall. Connect with the audience. If you watch that clip right before my first line, because we had to cut the intro down uh, for television. So it just yeah. kind of, it clicks in and and goes straight to it. But you'll see my, well, I, I'm left-handed with the mic. On my right hand, I touch the... T- the top of my belt, and that's to check to see if my zipper is up. Because <laughs> I literally, I literally think it's just like, oh. And if you watch the King of Sweden clip, which was our first time back on that stage, it's uh, for the yeah. Col- Colbert show, but it's the same yeah. uh, the Ed Sullivan Theater. There's a part where I kind of lean forward and I ch- check if my zipper is up, and it's not. And then, luckily, they clipped around it, but I had to zip myself up (laughs) one-handed, and I just cracked the biggest grin on TV, just like, and nobody knows why, but it's like, that's because my fucking dick was hanging out. Uh (laughs) I love that. I I, I, I love all that going on in your head, because it's kind of, it means you, the performance that you subconsciously gave almost is exactly what you were talking about earlier of the, 
the masculinity and vulnerability all all mm-hmm. presented in one kind of of thing. But I mean, it's perfectly time that you were talking about that kind of that it's then there to be debated. A, a good friend of mine is a Scottish comedian, Lemmy, who's oh, a big I know. fan of you guys. Oh, I know. About he loves you guys, and um, <laughs> I kind of hit him up, and he wanted he wanted to say that when he saw you on Letterman, he loved it and was absolutely gobsmacked and didn't know what he was watching in like in an exciting way. And he wanted to ask if you have ever watched a performer that's given you that kind of feeling, that kind of, I love this, but I don't know what it is. Like I know for me, the first time I saw the jazz musician, Christian Scott, who I'd collaborated with, but had never okay. actually seen him live. I then watched him and was just like, I don't know what this is, but it's the best thing in the world. And similarly with Curtis Plum, who I've picked up a couple of times now, and you're going to uh-huh. g- go and listen to it. Yeah, I'm not what to expect, but, but yeah, have you had anyone that you've watched in that way and kind of been like, right, I've not seen, I don't know what this is, but I can't look away and I, I fucking adore it. I feel like I, man, I must have, mm. I must have something really deep. I mean, that is kind of, I mean, that is what I got when I heard, when I saw, uh, when I heard Ian Curtis and then I, Shortly after saw yeah. uh, here are the young men. It was the yeah. it's that small like tour. It's not really a doc. It's like some early performances. Um, and I was like, what is he doing? What is, what is happening? Yeah. You know, yeah, him yeah, just yeah, like yeah. dancing in and out of you know a single light. You know, he's <laughs> like disappearing mm. and kind of like bringing that epileptic fit. I was just I did not understand that. And seeing the Cure like a, a oh it was in Orange, which I think is like eighty three eighty four concert. That was when I realized that Robert Smith played the guitar. And I was yeah. I just had always imagined him being just a singer. And then I was like, oh my God, he is ripping the guitar and he's singing this, <laughs> these crazy lines. And then I was like, I I need to learn how to do something else because I can't play any instruments. Yeah, yeah, part, yeah. Part of my part of what I do as performance <laughs> is because I don't have an instrument. And so I feel like yeah. I believe that if you are a front person and you don't play an instrument, you better do something. <laughs> like, do something. I, I, I learned a load of, like, Prince and At The Drive-In kind of style mic stand tricks and and little kicks yeah. and flips of the mic Love purely because of that, because of my own awkwardness. Because I'm like, well, yeah, you gotta do because something. the person I collaborated with was an amazing producer, there'd be these big instrumental bits. And it's like, if I'm on the mic, I'll move, I'll do everything. But if I'm not on the mic... I don't know. I don't know how 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 dancey I'm going to get. So it's finding those things from artists like that, yeah, far more talented than me, and, <laughs> and going right. Here's here's what I can add. Yeah, and the buzz of that was always amazing. The kind of I do I do a thing that I'm sure I stole it off Cedric about the driving that I'd let the mic kind of hang down, and then just before it kicks in with the outside of my heel, I'd give it a little kick, nice spin up and catch it. In I my love hand that as it move. Kicks in, and I, love- I was like. It's my fucking favourite move, but for a rap show, no one's doing that. And that's what I love, because <laughs> I, I grew up on punk and rap. So, I, you know, yeah, he's yeah. always trying to bring those two energies rather than simply, like you mentioned um, Anti-Pop Consortium earlier, one of my favourites, but I always remember s- s- seeing them live and thinking, do they know we're here? Yeah, because they, <laughs> they're just like, create their own world. So kind of contained and creating their own, totally. own world. So, yeah. Totally. It's but, that mad thing. But I don't, yeah, I'm... Man, I'm really bad off the top of my head with like uh with with this kind of stuff, but it is yeah. you know, I think mine performances that have really affected me and performers were uh those that I I spoke about, but also, you know, James Brown, like you watch the Tammy show yeah. and I yeah. wanted I want to know how to do that. Like I don't know yeah. 
how you do that, how the body does that. But also like watching, you can watch Elvis. There's that famous return. He had the famous return where he, he played on like a circular stage in the middle and he's in like all yeah. black leather. And black I watched leather, that years ago. Suit. And he he just does this move where he's de- he's like close to the front or this audience and he he looks so in pain and a single tear rolls down his, his cheek and the crowd... The women are just like gasping, screaming. And then he his, he just smiles through this yeah. tear. And I'm like, performance, this is amazing. And those kinds yeah. of moments of, I mean, for me, it's more, I've, I don't think I've ever seen a performance and been like, well, that can't be true. The what are you doing? I'm trying to, I'm trying to bring my head around that side. Because it is like, I like weird stuff and I like people to go out. And I'm always mining for what is... What is the truth of an artist? Why why what they do is important so that I can better understand my own self mm. as an artist and and like seeing people's freedoms. Cause I believe that, you know, some people ask me, you know, why don't ever why doesn't everybody perform like you? And I'm like, well, then I wouldn't be interesting. Um <laughs> yeah. and also it's yeah. not about it's about the person. You know, I think I bring my personal truth to the stage as I believe that it should be performed, but I don't think. I think if you write a song honestly and, you know, are sitting at a piano and singing it or speaking it, then it's going to come through. The emotion comes through from the pen, you know. It comes through from mm-hmm. that that original place of writing. The, the, the movement is a way of telling the story. The dance is a hook, you know. The dance is a yeah. way of grabbing people's attention so that then you can tell them something important so that you can, you can hit them. So I think… I think Lots of musicians work in very different ways to create those hooks. Then maybe they don't even uh, recognize that that's what they're doing. But it is for me. It's all yeah. about grabbing people's attention so that you can tell them something in, in any way you can. Whether it's you know something that you know, <laughs> we did a tour recently opening for Weezer, and they were so sweet to us, and we felt you know honored to you know they asked us to play these huge shows with them. But we're like. This could get weird. I don't think we really, I don't know what the crossover is. And it was. The first yeah. half of the tour was kind of rough because their fans did not like it. <laughs> they were just like, yeah. What is this clown man doing? They were like, music's okay, but uh, this guy's, uh, he's weird and disgusting. I don't like it. And, uh, and I, had to, I had to like reassess. I had to deal with this thing that I hadn't dealt with in a while, uh, this pushback. Because because the other thing is you when you uh, do create a world for yourself with music, you get to exist in that world. Yeah. And, and as Mike said, you know, if you're always during that tour, he's like, you know, if you're always playing to the choir, then you don't really have to go through any adversity. So we had to like mm-hmm. we had to deal with it, like feel it, and then we actually became better because of the tour because we we had to double down on what we did and be like, oh yeah, well, this is what we do. Like, I'm not going to change what I do for you. Because for for a few yeah. shows, I was trying to like tamp it down a little bit, make it a little bit easier. And then I was like, nah, I'm going to rip faces. We're ripping faces yeah. off. And, and, and then the ones you went over are worth all the more. I always remember in a one-year period, me and Dan supported LP, saw Williams doing a spoken word set, wow. and we weren't. We were doing our full set. Billy Bragg just... Oh, guitar crazy. and Billy. <laughs> what is this and tour? Mark, and and Mark Ronson. Like this is these were all wow. different t- tours that we support. And Mark Ronson, oh, okay. who was I'm doing sorry. his full jazz band thing. Okay. And it was like th- this was all within one year. And it was just us going, right, well, we're not going to be able to adapt for all of them. So we yeah. need to just go out there and do what we do. Yeah, exactly. 
there's no band who can adapt to fit all of those. Set. So it's exactly that. You have a load of people in the crowd going, the fuck is this? And like the Billy Braggs one's the best example because we started and I swear 0% of that audience was into what we were doing. Uh, and by the end, we, we had at least 50%. Like, I'm not yeah, saying we had 100%, but we had over 50%. That's a great achievement like, though. I mean, that's it, the thing. Yeah, if you can do the that, best. you know. That, and that's why those kinds of tours are can be special. Yeah. It's just like reaching. I mean, that was I was surprised how many young kids were at those shows. And then I was like, yeah. you know, maybe we turned on some some kids with some stuff they didn't really know. You know, I don't know what's happening. Uh it's what it's it's the mad thing with some of those bands though. Like my again, my goddaughter, who's like 13 or 14, I think now, when she put up her, her Spotify wrapped recently. She had Weezer, Buddy Holly in there, and I was like, "That yeah. would have been on my Spotify Wrapped when I was thirteen or fourteen. Yeah, it's yeah, like, that's pretty cool. How is this still? And I think that with with Green Day are always an example of of that for, uh-huh. for me as well. Yeah, like I was into them at school. I'm not necessarily into them now, but kids at my uh, that that are at that age are still they're the best band in the world. And Weezer yeah. are a prime example of that as well. It's yeah, that that's mad a good point. Longevity, isn't it? Yeah, well, Green I mean, Day's still on the charts. <laughs> yeah. Still charting. It's insane. Well, I mean, we're going to have to wrap things up, but we've not talked about your new album at all. And and you've... I don't care. sent it through for me to have a listen to, <laughs> and I loved it. Thank so you so much. Tell me a bit about it. Tell me about what the album is, what your, your approach has been. Yeah, talk to me. I'd say the approach is we didn't really we didn't really approach this album any differently than the past records. Uh, but the thing that was born into this record just because of the state of the world was time. Mm-hmm. You know, within you know, in the old days, we'd write a record. You know, just be on tour all the time. You'd be on the road for two months. You get home for two or three weeks, and you say, "Well, I'm tired of that set, so let's write some new songs." You write. We used mm-hmm. to just like. Get home for a couple of weeks, write a couple of songs, take them on the road. If they lasted the tour, you know, maybe only one would last. Maybe they would both die very quickly. Then they became a part of the set. And then, you you know, you're out there. Then you get home, write a couple more songs. And then, you know, if they exist mm. at the end. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and yeah, yeah. then this was the process for our first three albums. Um, and, you know, once we got five or six songs, we would go about to record them. And while recording those songs, we would flesh out the rest of the record, which is why like our first three albums are all, they're like eight and nine songs, you know? It's it's not, uh, there was space to do more, but there wasn't time or money or, you know, those were all recorded in friends' living rooms and skate parks and and this kind of thing. So with singles was the first time that we went and recorded in a real studio. And, you know, we we got off the road, we took a year, almost a year off uh, and wrote and recorded an album. And then that became... The new style, but what happened with "As Long as You Are" our last record, we we were supposed to put it out at the beginning of 2020, and then of course the pandemic happened, and then it was like, well, how long do we hold on to this record? You know, do we yeah. wait until the pandemic? What do we do? You know, because there was no idea when the pandemic was going to be over. So we ended up putting out at the end, putting it out at the end of 2020, because also for us, like, kind of have to put out a record to be done with it. You know, like once once the album is out, then you can't. You can't futz with the mix, you know. Mm-hmm. You, you just have to like yeah. accept that that's what it is, and then that acceptance allows you to go forward and write new songs. So, so by the time I'd say by the time that record was turned in, it was uh, middle of twenty twenty or early twenty twenty, and we started writing. So the first year and a half 
of writing was the first seven songs. And they were all kind of dealing with this space. Like my, my ex was in, was in Sweden. And for the first six and a half, seven months of the pandemic, I was unable to get back to her because of border closures and lockdowns and all this mm-hmm. stuff. Finally able to get back for three months, but then I had to leave for three months because of visa. Then I got back for three months. Then I had to leave again for three months or for four months. And then when I went back the last time at the end of 2021, uh, we split up, you know, this, mm-hmm. this time and distance. And it just like, it was a weird, it was kind of like one of those things you, I, like looking back, I saw that I should have seen it coming, but I, you know, and when I looked at the yeah. songs, those seven songs that were written up until this point over the pandemic, I'd seen them as these love songs of two people apart that were holding on that it was going to get to, we were going to get to the end together, you know, mm-hmm. through this hard time. And then we split and I was like, oh, that's not what those songs were. <laughs> These songs were me like holding, desperately holding on or like trying yeah. to remind a person like, hey, remember that we have to, you know, not and not that she didn't feel that. We both felt the same way, yeah. but but uh, it was like, I, I think I could feel that she was slipping in that distance and just like how hard it was, like, you know, uh, the disassociation to get through the time and just the, the everyday agony of not knowing, just like fear and anxiety. And so when we split, the, those songs became very colored very, very differently. Um, mm. They started to mean different things and I could really divine them in different ways. But, you know, after that, the last uh, five songs were written pretty, pretty fairly quickly. I think the first four were written within a, two, three-month period. And then the last song came uh, in, in like June, July of, of uh, 22, which is, I actually recorded that song in, when I was in Toronto filming. And it's the only time right. I've ever, I recorded the demo on this mic. And when it came time to record it in the studio, I asked the producer, like, can we keep it? You're like, can you, it, <laughs> is the vocal good enough that you can make it sound like it's in the world. Because, you know, this is, I'm just like on a, it's my travel rig. But I was like, I'll never be able to capture the emotion of that day Mm. in finishing that song and recording it in a city that I don't live in, (laughs) you know, in this new isolation, in this new world, completely separated from this person that was, I thought, my life. And now I, I was just like, can you, can you use it? And he's like, I'll do my best. And, uh, and it, it ended up working out and I, I can't even, I, I feel like maybe we did try to take it and it was just like, this doesn't sound the same. And I'm like, it's not the same. Yeah. You know, now it's we're always, the, always the risk of falling in love with a demo, isn't it? And again, yeah, if, you gotta if, watch if, out. if there's something is there, Dan Lasak, who I used to work with kind of stopped sending me early versions of his beats because mm-hmm. I'd fall in love with him. I'd write the whole thing to this thing and he'd go, no, it's not finished yet. And I'd be like, no, like, but don't it's touch perfect. Like, thing. He yeah. wouldn't let me have it until he was happy with it. Cause he's like, Otherwise, we're just going to end up arguing. It's like, yeah, I don't no, want you to hear a version that totally I'm not true. happy with and you and you fall in love with because of the moment in which you heard it and what it meant and, and what it inspired at that time. So, yeah. Yeah. I love that you got to use that still and got to, to push that through. Well, yeah, and that was something me and uh, our, it was our co-producer, Steve Wright, had we had talked about on As Long As You Are, where he was like, you know, at some point we need to get you a pro rig where you're set up and when you have those because he's like there is a there is a difference like when you your demos the quality is not great but the emotion is like mm. so much better than what we capture in here yeah you know on it's really interesting on average it's like there's you're going through a thing and it's true like you know when you write a song you're just like oh you're feeling it you also haven't 
you haven't quite figured out like uh, how you want to make it sound better, which is like more yeah. approachable. So it has like a an, another layer of a rawness and a simplicity, which actually those kinds of elements hit harder, you know, when it's, uh, yeah, you're not trying to soften the edges to make it more palatable. You're, you're, you're just like have that raw idea um, or the, you know, the way your voice breaks because you're, you don't have the pressure of like, oh, it's going to last forever. So it doesn't really matter. But that, that yeah. throwawayness is part of, I mean, that if, if it is a throwawayness that is in the quality of your vocal, it's probably because you're trying to throw away a feeling. And that's exactly, yeah. you're capturing you throwing away a feeling. Yeah, it's just ah, fucking demoitis, yeah. man. It's real. <laughs> it's hard. Yeah. yeah. It's a tough thing. It's a tough thing. I always remember the original, I said, the original version of this song, Thou Shalt Always Kill, that came out was just recorded in my bedroom at my mum's house. Uh huh. Yeah. And then we had to re record it when we were doing the album just because the rest of the album was, you know, it didn't sit in there. Yeah. And I, I struggled massively with it because it was like, but that's the one that everyone, that, that's the one everyone else fell in love with. Like, so Demo Artists has got into everyone else, if you know what I mean. Like, uh, we didn't keep this to ourselves because it was the MySpace era. Oh, uh, like, yeah, yeah. We just made it, uploaded it, here you go. It's like, now we're doing a new version that, yeah, I don't know, everyone might also think, oh, why have you done that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> What's yeah. What's the point in that? It's, it's tricky. It's tricky. It's I think because we had to upload uh, two, of the, two of the early singles, which, you know, uh, came out long before the record's going to come out are going to have, they're going to be remixed. You know, nothing drastic, but I know there's going to be some fans who are like, I want my other mix. I like the original. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, (laughs) what are you going to do? Because we ended up, so we we finished this record uh, probably, I mean, really close to the end of 22. I thought we were two days away from finishing uh, the mix. And then... uh, uh, William, <laughs> William, our bassist, uh, had the idea to remix the whole album with another mixer. Great. So we broke out the checkbook, and uh, <laughs> in the in the spirit of let's make sure everyone's happy, but we ended up creating this hybridized version from kind of where we were with our buddy uh, Steve Wright, who you know co-producer, mixer, and then our our friend uh, Chris Cody, who did our our album singles, mm-hmm. and they have very different styles of mixing, like. Steve, what we had achieved with Steve was this kind of uh, clarity in our music that we'd never gotten before. Like, you can really hear every every voice of every everyone within the band. Um, you can hear all of Garrett's sound sparkling through. It was just like, it was something that I really, I was really proud of with As Long As You Are that we had created with Steve. And, and I felt like we had gotten better with this new material. But then in hearing Chris's mixes, we kind of lost the clarity, but he was bringing this like, there was something to his sounds that were just like, thicker and like mm. stickier and and uh he brought some kind of it was like a intangible vibe but it was like but the dynamic is off you know like we had worked some of these songs we had worked with Steve for like a year year and a half mixing two of the songs were already out you know um yeah. and then you're yeah. like how are you going to you know there's no way I'm going to unhear a finished mastered song that's been out for 2 years and now I have to hear <laughs> a new mix yeah. of it. Like, this is messing with my head. So then we kind of, we approached Steve and Chris and said, is it crazy if you mix, if Chris mixes from Steve's mixes? Because, you know, when you have somebody mm-hmm. mix a record, you zero out all the effects and all the levels and then they just go from scratch. But yeah. we had already done all the work to make these songs yeah. super dynamic, um, super clear, 
Um, and I thought sound really good, but there there was something about Chris's sonics. And ba- both of them was like, we're basically like, well, people don't do this. And then we're like, we know. Are you willing to do it though? And that's amazing. And they basically were like, yeah, well, like Steve was like, I relinquish what whatever will help this project, you know, reach the finish. I'm happy if, you know, this is on, <laughs> this, people don't do this. And Chris was also like, it's pretty weird, but uh, yeah, I'll, I'll give it a shot. Yeah. And, and yeah, I think it was, a, I think we really achieved that. Like Chris added a heft while not taking away from the movement and the dyna- the dynamic movements of the record. And, and for me, you know, Chris, Chris made our most successful album. Steve, in my opinion, made our best sounding album up to this point. So I'm like, mm. if these two guys can work together and we can find this compromising place, then we're all the better off. You know, it's kind of, it's kind of the best it. of the best of these two worlds. But the most important thing was that we were still all happy, which I now have two albums that I'm really proud of the sound of, you know, I think, uh, and, and I think for all, all four of us, you know, there's always something there with those, the first five records, somebody has a problem with something, you know, it doesn't, you're just like, I wish I had sang that differently. I wish I would my yeah. bass tone was different. I wish, I wish they hadn't remixed my drums that way. I wish my keys were, and you know, as long as you are, the goal was because we had all the time in the world because of the pandemic, we made sure that we made a record that all of us were proud of and had no issues with. And then we somehow did it again, even after a major overhaul at the last minute. <laughs> I love it. I love the kind of people don't do it this way and you guys being able to go, yeah, but can they? Yeah. Can we do it this way? This It's a beautiful thing rather than take that of, no, that's not how it's done. It's like, it's not how it's been done. Yeah. But how about it's how it's done here? If, you know, it's, it's what's right for the project. Uh, yeah, precisely. I love that. Yeah, precisely. And, you know, it is, it's about like, it's about sucking up egos for everybody too. You know, mm-hmm. I knew at that point, like, William would not allow it to exist as it was. He needed, he needed to have one more touch on it. But also the guys and myself weren't willing, but I think the guys more so, Mike and Garrett, weren't willing to throw away all of this work we had done. Mm. And and I was like, how do I say, (laughs) how do I stick this together? You know, like, and, uh, and so I was just happy that they were willing. And I think we hit our manager first and he was like, yeah, yeah, that they, they aren't going to go for that. And so you were wrong, (laughs) Ben, you were wrong. I was, uh, you heard it here first, folks. Uh, Ben was wrong. (laughs) 100% wrong. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm proud of the it. record. It's so dense with emotions. And that's, <laughs> it's kind of, it's a strange world when you do this press cycle and you start doing interviews and you have to like actually figure out what the hell your songs are about. And then you're mm-hmm. like, oh man, this is sad. <laughs> Particularly after such a broken period as well. And as you said, the kind of, the reframing of what they're about even because of where you are when you wrote them and yep. versus when you recorded them and so on and so forth. It's Yeah, so yeah. it's still like, it, you know, the, these albums reveal themselves over time and songs reveal themselves over time through the playing them. You know, the, mm. these songs haven't even reached their finished point because, you know, I guess seven or eight of them haven't even been on stage yet, you know. I'm giving big nods here because I, I truly believe you know how if they I change. Re, in, <laughs> if I could re-record every album after a year of touring them, yeah. I would. Yeah. Because that's when so you much find harder. the finished yeah. song. Yeah, that's when you find what this song is meant to be. I've had it numerous times that 
a song has come on w- when I'm out somewhere and it's one of mine and I'll be like, is that how that goes? Because yeah. that's not that that's not how it ended up going after touring that? it for years. It's like, that's yeah. not how that goes at all. Like, what's happened there? Well, I mean, we're going to have to wrap things up at some point. I kind of want to ask <laughs> what's ahead, but I assume it's a load of touring. You know, new record tends to mean hitting the road again. Yeah, we've got, we we haven't announced many dates yet. I mean, part of the album title, People Who Aren't There Anymore, is also about, like, us as musicians. Like, we're uh, mm-hmm. in the future. Like, we're we're not really planning to tour the way we used to. You yeah. know, we for years, we have per, uh, prided ourselves on being a band who is going to be in your town or near it. You know, yeah. and yeah. doing our best to, yeah, just try to be, try to play everywhere. And, and, uh, it's not, that's not sustainable anymore. Uh, for mm-hmm. me, for me personally, you know, I've got, I've, my leg is destroyed. So I have a, I've had a torn ACL for about eight years now. And, and mm-hmm. that's turned into like advanced arthritis and it's just very painful vocal problems. So it just takes, you know, and I'm, I'm about to be 40. It takes longer for the body to recover. And it's not going to get yeah, easier. So, so like doing 150 shows a year is not a thing that I can do and be on this earth. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so we are paring down to like 50, 60 shows a year, and uh, and going forward, and just trying to make those shows really count. Make make sure that when we do play, it's at 100 percent. Because I feel terrible when I have to to give anything less than what I think I'm I'm capable of. And it's mm-hmm. not about going well i'm i'm always going to give more than i got but it needs to be something that uh that is consistent and i don't i don't feel like i'm inconsistent but there is a pain that goes into those long jaunts on the road now and uh and i don't want people to <laughs> to see that pain i want it to be a joyous experience and not one that i have to channel something darker to to uh reach people i i I don't know if that really makes sense, but sometimes I'm… Makes perfect sense. Yeah, I feel like there were some times, uh, not even last year, but the year before that, where I was on the road and being like, I just want to, yeah, I want to die. And I don't know how I'm going to go on stage tonight. But it was just like, just put it in the performance, Sam. You know, I'm just telling myself, like, just Mm. let it out. And like, I'm right. I'm right. And it's a good lesson, but also… I don't want that to be, I don't want to be exercising this. I, I don't want to exercise pain. I want to exercise, mm. I, I don't know. I do want to exercise pain, but I, I'm trying to say, I want, I want the pain to come from the pure places of the songs and trying to reach people and not from the decay of my body, which is the decay of my spirit. Yeah, from the experience of touring itself. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, so just, I just want to be at a more positive place. And the guys feel the same. You know, Garrett's a father now. So it's also important for, for him. Also for me, you know, because I want to be a good uncle to be like, yeah. you should be there for your kid. Like, let's not, <laughs> yeah. let's yeah, not yeah, be yeah, gone yeah. for four or five months of the year. Like, I want, <laughs> yeah. I want for you, and Garrett's a great father, but I want for you to be a good father and be there um, and be around. So, yeah, you know, we're just getting older. But I've got a crazy rap album coming out sometime in May or June. Exciting. Again, we've hardly touched on your rap stuff, but you, you know, you've you've worked with people like Madlib, who are just icons. In yeah, this, in this world. So, 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 so yeah, tell me a, a little bit about the the next rap album. The next record is with this guy Icky Reels, who's a Cleveland, Ohio producer. He's very different than 
actually the the funny story about it is he's uh he's a DJ producer for Beans from Anti Pop Consortium. Yeah. And yeah, about yeah. three four years ago, Beans hit me up out of the blue and asked through Instagram and asked me if I would feature on a track of his. Um, and I was like. What, like hello what's up <laughs> like, like we'd never spoken before he just like hit me <laughs> and i'm like that. you're one of my heroes hey. this is crazy so so i did we did this track together called anti-star system which is bonkers you should check it out if you haven't heard it and then through that process of making that that song he was like you know do you have, do you have anything like are, have you been working on anything what's up and i was like i have this whole mad lib album that i never that i don't think is ever going to get released and he's like i'd love to hear it and so I, I sent him this Dropbox file folder, and uh, he was basically like, "This, this is, this is fire. This is great. Like, why isn't coming out?" And I was like, "I, I don't know. I think, I think he just moved on from it. And these things are just kind of old songs now. They're like seven, eight years old. They finally actually got released in the last year with a buddy. But he was basically like, "Well, no disrespect, because like Madlib is the god, but I think that you can do. I think that you're better than these beats, though. Like, I think you can." You know, because of what I did with him on Anti Star System, which is you know, more of that kid of who I was, uh, like tongue twisters and but but there's yeah. messages within it. It's not just showing off, but just like crazy styles. To Matt, I'm like with I'm with fucking Beans from Anti Pops. I'm like I gotta bring it. I probably stole a little bit home. from High Priest. I was like, let me be a little High yeah, Priest yeah, here. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, so he's like he basically was like, I think you need to be challenged more, and he started sending me. He's like. If you're willing, I'll introduce you to my buddy. And so, uh, so yeah, so me and Icky Real started to uh, collaborate on some ideas back in probably 21 was the first stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's very different. It's just like very acidic, industrial sounding beats with weird time signatures. You know, some songs that are like, there's a couple of songs that are like seven minutes long and go through five or six different changes. And, and I'm yeah. just like, what? I, I mean, I really had to push myself to match the strange landscapes and energies. That's great. Uh, I'm, cu- I'm curious what people are going to think of it. It's, it's not like a, a thing that you will be heavily consumed, but I don't really expect that. You know, like that's that's the joy of rap for me now is that even though it's my first art form, I'm not known for it. I'm still like, I say, uh, oh, what is it? There, there's, a, there's a song that I, that I put out over, it was one of these old Mad Lib songs, but... Um, the way my voice compressed in the deck, my voice sound like a vet, but you ain't heard it before because I've been hiding out in the storm, picking up the pieces of yours till I found my piece in the floor, heartbeat from the floorboards. Vonnegut to Poe, Chris Parker to Daniel D. Karrison. But, you know, it's just like, you have it. I'm, I'm a veteran, but you don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you have no idea who I am. the whole time. I've been You've here 20 years. Yeah. yeah, you don't, you, you haven't heard it. So, so there is that part of me that uh, I, I just love to explore without, you know, once again, that's the power, like as coming into an acting role and being like, I'm going to do my best, but you know, I'm I, yeah. like, you don't, you wouldn't know any different. So, and I think with, with rap, like I, I've explored so many different styles on different uh, features and different projects because no one knows how I'm supposed to sound. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't, and I don't, yeah. but it's a power because I already have my career. So I get to enjoy rap and uh, and explore it very fully because I don't have to feel that I need to achieve something yeah. other than being honest to myself, which is how lovely is that? Yeah. 
It's a beautiful thing, right? Yeah. I love it. Well, I appreciate you taking the time, man. It's been a pleasure to to finally meet and and chat. And I look forward to catching up again soon in, in the real world, no doubt. In the real world. Let's do it. It has been such a pleasure, Pip. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we bloody go. What a guy and what a story and what a speaker and what a conversationalist. I loved that. I really enjoyed that conversation and I look forward to more of them. I hope you, you, you enjoyed it as much as I did. Very excited. The new album is fantastic and I'm excited to catch them live because I've never caught Future Islands live. And I should have. I had the opportunity twice and was going to go but couldn't make it last minute. But next time I get the opportunity, I'm going, I tell you that. And and and, and check out Changeling on, the, on Apple Plus. It's good. It's good. I recommend it. I'll be back next week with more amazing guests. Until then, stay safe and stay sane. Ta-ta.